Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as all the best insight and analysis of the game we all love. I mean, McGarry, with me as always, is Duncan Castles. It's Wednesday's Transfer Window pod, which means it's your questions answered. First, of course, we want to bring you some developing news, and that is on the saga of Paul Pogba and Manchester United. And, of course, we couldn't mention either without mentioning our old friend Mino Raiola. The Transfer Window understands that Raiola has been trying very, very hard to uh, find an offer which is suitable for Pogba amongst the elite European clubs over the past few weeks. No surprise there, you'll say, but you might be surprised to hear that no offer so far has been forthcoming. This has led to some uh, discontent, who certainly does believe in himself to be one of the best players in the world, although, of course, after only four starts for the Old Trafford Club this season, it's difficult to say that that's the case on current form. Uh, Coupled with uh, what people will certainly construe, rightly or wrongly, that he has a serious attitude problem, given his absence from the United team this season, and, of course, the continuing bickering between uh, Raiola and Manchester United and everywhere else, then it seems to be the case that Raiola seems to have a problem in his hands marketing his most famous player. Now, Duncan, this does seem like an odd situation. However, I think, uh, you know, you and I's experience of how transfers work and how players get these kind of moves would say that uh, Pogba himself and Raiola as his agent are not doing um, themselves any favours with what's been happening regarding the pot shots taken in the media uh, from Raiola to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United. And then the sudden reverse um, on those comments um, where Pogba even suggested, and I think this was, um, I don't know about you, just a little bit strange um, that, that contract talks in terms of an extension for Pogba at Manchester United may yet even be a possibility. Um, Manchester United currently asking at least €100 million Euros for the player uh, but clubs uh, in this situation, this is potential buyers, as of course, this is a classic situation of everyone knows Pogba wants to leave. Everyone knows, knows that Manchester United want to sell. The player himself is not covering himself in glory with his behaviour. That means only one thing to interested clubs, and that is discount a lower price, which is not something Manchester United want. And of course, not something Raiola wants for his client in terms of what salary he's offered and, of course, the commission for Raiola. Duncan, we've had lots of questions about this. Um, Let's just quickly uh, cite uh, Denny Holland, who has asked us, if Pogba wants a move, are there any buyers and no one has quoted anyone near what United would be willing to sell for? Well, I think we've answered that part of the question. How do you see this playing out? I mean, have you been surprised, Duncan, by the way that Raiola has been so um, on the offence, and then suddenly you turned into defence. Well, you say everyone knows, and and that I, I, I rest on those words because Matthias Pogba, Pogba's brother, has been quoted this week in an interview he did in Spain saying 
everyone knows that Paul wants to leave Manchester United. He wants to play Champions League football and win titles. We all know that won't happen at United. We'll, we'll see what happens this summer. So there you go. That's it from as close as you can get from Paul Pogba's own mouth. Um, and I, I think you're right to identify the issue that Raiola has because his, his strength in this battle, his ability to um, attack Solskjaer on social media um, and, and give interviews that put him in a difficult position and, okay, try and revert those immediately afterward with, with another interview in which he talks about there being um, no offers for Paul at present. But when he's asked um, about him staying at the club, everything is caveated with the words in this moment, for now, at the moment. Um, so it, it's nothing of nothing that Raiola says, even in the most positive of those comments about his future at the club, are actually a proper commitment that Pogba will stay there, wants to be there, um, that there's no question he remains at Manchester United. It's just a matter of getting him fit again uh, and, and getting him playing. And yes, they will jump into those contract talks and he'll commit himself for the, for the next um, four or five years of his career. That's not what you're hearing from Raiola. Um, and remember, with, with Mino Raiola, you're talking about someone who has experience of losing an elite or top-level um, valuable client quite recently. So Romelu Lukaku decided to dump Raiola as his agent ahead of his move to Inter in the summer, um, hiring an Italian agent to, to do the work on that transfer, which would have cost Raiola a very significant commission, um, an ongoing um, percentage from Lukaku's salary. So you wonder whether Raiola is now because of the behaviour of his client, because of the behaviour of himself, because of the, the fact that his time at Manchester United has been a failure from the sense of what has been achieved on the pitch, from the sense that the brother is saying he's not even going to get to play Champions League football if he remains here, never win titles. There can come a point where the player says, well, actually, have you placed me in a difficult position? Did you send me to the wrong club in the first place? Um, I want out of here and you keep telling me I'm a great player. I think I'm a great player, but there's no, there's no offer on the table from a, a better club where I can play in the Champions League and I can win titles and it's your job to get me one. Um, so you can understand that there would be a pressure on Raiola there to churn the market up, um, to use a, a verb that Ed Woodward sometimes likes to talk about in, in, when discussing Manchester United's transfer policy. He needs to generate an offer for Pogba. In, in one of those interviews, he talked about there are not many clubs that can afford to sign him and there can't be a lot of clubs that can be interested in him because they can't afford to sign him before saying there are no talks with any clubs at the moment. Um, he knows he has to draw one of those very affluent suitors in and then manufacture a situation when he can get him out of Manchester United for a reasonable transfer fee, uh, at least match the, the very substantial salary he earns at Manchester United and preferably better it, uh, and get the deal done. Um, add, on, add into all of this 
So you, you've got these issues with Pogba as an individual. You've got these issues with his behaviour, all of which are not going to be attractive to suitor clubs. You've also got the fact he has hardly played any football this season and is um, currently out with what people are reporting to be an osteochondral defect um, in his ankle. But the context of missing so much football through the course of a season, again, doesn't help someone like Mino Raiola find a new and very affluent suitor who wants to make Pogba a central part of their plans going forward. So difficult situation, not just for Manchester United and Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, but also a difficult situation for Paul Pogba and Mino Raiola at the moment. Well, Pep Guardiola himself is on record as saying that Raiola offered Paul Pogba to Manchester City and with that uh, two-year ban from UF in terms of playing in European football, I suppose that's one affluent suitor we can rule out, uh, given Pogba's stated ambition to play in the Champions League, etc. Narrowing it down to just Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid, if indeed uh, that's the, those two clubs are interested. We know that um, Florentino Perez, the president of, of Madrid, has balked at the price that Manchester United are asking, indeed um, balked at the salary as well that Viola's told him that uh, Pogba will command. PSG, of course, uh, back in his native France, could be an, uh, a possibility. Um, but would Pogba accept a move to what is effectively an inferior league, albeit he would pay, pay the King's ransom? I tell you, Duncan, I can see this playing out now as Pogba remarkably and almost miraculously being fit to play for France in the European Championships this summer, and both he and Viola gambling, to a degree I say gambling, uh, that the player has a very good tournament like he did uh, when uh, France won the World Cup in 2018, and therefore making his value both uh, in salary and transfer fee much greater. Uh, and, there, and then I think negotiations uh, in earnest could begin then. Yeah, obviously the European Championship and um, and the opportunity to win that title on the back of the World Cup is very attractive to Pogba and important. And you can see him doing what, to be fair, many players do uh, ahead of a tournament like that and focus the recovery on being in the best condition possible for the tournament. Um, that's a possibility. I think another club you have to consider here is Juventus. Um, and you certainly have to con- consider Serie A. Um, Raul has talked about him going back to Italy. Possibly he will try and uh, involve Inter in that equation as they as they strengthen themselves as a club and become more competitive over there. So if you can get two of the big Italian clubs interested in potentially taking him, that would help his situation. But with Juventus, um, they definitely like the player. Uh, if you ask people close to Juventus about the possibility of going back there, they'll never say never to it but financially it's problematic for them and they're in a period where they're actually been trying to get uh, highly paid midfielders off their books uh, and rebalance their books um, having put so much money into Cristiano Ronaldo's acquisition and those of several other players in recent seasons in that attempt to finally bring the, the European Cup back to Torino. Very true. Um, I, from what I've heard from our sources uh, in Italy, um, that is a financial predicament which 
at this moment in time would certainly preclude Juventus from being in the market for Pogba unless they can persuade Manchester United to take players uh, in part of that deal. Uh, obviously, I Ramsey, Adrian Rabiot have not been hugely um, uh, influential in their first season for uh, the Turin club. Could become part of that negotiation. They were both signed on free transfers. So I suppose they could possibly take out half of the current fee um, which Manchester United are looking for, therefore making it more of a possibility that uh, they, they could afford to take Pogba back there. Interesting question from Gunnar Sol, Duncan. Um, again, mentioning our friend Mino, uh, but also uh, the current manager as well. And, and uh, he asks, did Mino damage Ehrlich's, uh, obviously he's talking about Erling Haaland's career, by blocking a move to a more historic club and to the best league in the world, question mark. Thoughts on Ole being the only manager in the last three decades to do a league double over Chelsea. Duncan, last time I looked, there were no trophies for doing a league double over Chelsea. Uh, indeed, Burnley didn't get one when they did it a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure why um, Manchester United should be looking for one. Um, any thoughts about giving him a donkey just in case to make up for it? <laughs> Uh, maybe we could have a, a special trophy built for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to celebrate what is it is a remarkable achievement that he is the only Manchester United manager to have a, a, a league double over um, Chelsea. I think there are, are a few circumstances that explain why that happened. As for um, Erling Holland um, and damaging his career, it doesn't look that way at the moment, does it? Um, he's scored 11 goals in seven matches, just scored a double in the Champions League. Um, he seems to have set settled in from a January move as well as any player ever. And we, we often talk about how difficult it is to, to shift clubs in January. The strategy was to move them to Dortmund to have that minimal change of, of environment from Austria um, and allow his career to develop there. His career seems to be um, jet propelled at present. So I think it's hard to make a case that, um, that Raiola has uh, damaged Holland's um, career by stopping him from going to Manchester United at present. I'm wondering, Duncan, if um, uh, although Gunnar Sol is he's a regular listener, so we've got to assume that the uh, tag is is, is accurate and uh, correct. Maybe this is actually a, a kind of ghost byline here. Maybe it's Paul Pogba saying has Mino damaged his career by blocking his move and not getting me a move instead. <laughs> I totally agree with you. You cannot say that uh, Haaland's career has been damaged. If anything, it's being for change, very well managed, because what Raiola, and let's give him credit here, credit's due, he could have gone to any club, basically, and instead, although to be fair, I think his dad uh, had a big say in this, he went to a club where he knew he'd play every game, he would get the platform on the stage to show what he's worth. He's still a teenager, uh, and, you know, obviously he will develop. If he spends two years in the Bundesliga or even more, he can choose whichever club in the world he wants to go if he keeps developing at the rate that he has been in the last two years. So um, I think, you said, you never thought you'd heard it on the, in the transfer on the podcast. Credit to Mino. He's uh, he's produced a, a definite uh, pizza especialité there, I think, mixing, mixing up my languages. Fully deserves his slice of that particular pizza <laughs> deal. <laughs> 
But let's let's talk about Solskjaer and his achievements. Yeah. Um, so yes, he has a fantastic record against the big six clubs. Um, unbelievably good, given his overall record um, as Manchester United manager. Um, so despite I think having lost just one match against the big six, is that correct? In the in the, in his Premier League um, meetings with them. Yep. Manchester United are seventh in the division. Um, they are behind Sheffield United. They are um, three points off the Champions League qualifying places with Chelsea holding that fourth place, um, having already lost nine games. So the, the standard to get into uh, fourth place is, is almost historically low, certainly very low compared with recent seasons. Um, United have won just 10 games out of 26 in the Premier League this season. They've scored just 38 goals in 26 matches. So what that big six record tells you is that his record against everyone else is phenomenally bad by Manchester United standards. Um, We know why he's good at beating big six teams because he still has um, a lot of... uh, high quality players and you, and you you hear this when you listen to opponents talking about playing against Manchester United and saying it's really difficult to play against a team that has quality players who set up in a very low block with a back five and try and hit you on the break with their pace and that's what United have done and done well against those teams the problem of course is he doesn't have a system that allows him to beat teams he should be beating. Therefore, they're seventh in the league um, and on track for their lowest ever uh, Premier League points return in terms of average points per matches so far this season. You can look at those two individual games and actually Solskjaer's beaten Chelsea three times this season. He also beat them in the, in the League Cup. But look at the two individual games. The first one, probably Manchester United's best result of the season, 4-0 victory against Chelsea. We talked about it at the time, it was um, playing on the counter-attack. Chelsea probably had the better of the match to begin with, should have been ahead. Manchester United score and then pick them off on the break going forward from that. The the game in midweek, um, almost everything went in their favour. Again, I I think most neutral observers would say Chelsea were the better football team, um, had the better of the match, created the better chances, but were struggling with um, Michi Batshuayi as the striker who's clearly lacking confidence. Even had Frank Lampard talking about his lack of confidence after the game and being in a bad spell. You can argue that Lampard should have brought Giroud on earlier in the match. Um, They had... Three VAR decisions go in their favour. Um, the You have one very significant one in the 22nd minute where Harry Maguire um, kicks Michibachuai in the testicles, <laughs> thrusts his leg towards him as Batshuayi is trying to stop himself um, falling on Maguire rather than move out of the way. And Maguire's defence was that he, he saw... Um, Batshuayi following on him and put his leg up there to um, to try and and uh, and stop him landing on his body. Almost every neutral observer I've seen and and some non very non neutral observers such as Paul Scholes are in agreement that that has to be a red card offence for violent conduct. Um, instead, neither the referee 
Anthony Taylor or the VAR, Chris Kavanagh, um, this feel that there is a red card defence there. Maguire, an English player, gets to remain on the pitch. Um, he goes on to score the second and decisive goal in the game. Just imagine the, the difference in perception of Harry Maguire had he been justifiably red carded for that incident. He goes off after 22 minutes of a key game in Manchester United's Champions League qualification attempt. Um, very hard to see Manchester United getting a result out of that game in those circumstances, playing with 10 men. Maybe they would, but odds are they wouldn't. And would then be suspended for three matches on top. Um, so you would have a situation where your £85 million centre-back gets him sent off for petulant, violent conduct in early in a match against key opponents in one of the most important games of the season. Steady stays on the field, scores a goal. Um, Chelsea get a goal back at 1-0 where Cesar Azpilicueta is judged to have pushed um, Brandon Williams in the back before heading on for a teammate to score. Um, the VAR picks that up and overrules the goal, but fails to pick up that Fred had pushed um, Aspilicueta in the back, forcing him into Brandon Williams in the first place. So he, there's, a, you know, there's a clear argument there that um, that the the goal should have stood because the foul on Brandon Williams was caused by a foul by Fred, which could have been given as a penalty. I was going to say, what's the penalty, Duncan? I was going. To, I, I I think if, in terms of causal effect, you don't. Referees or even VAR cannot um, say that because of the push by Fred, which goes into Aspilicueta, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, means that the goal should stand. They have to stand by the first punishable incident in that phase of play, which would have been the initial push in Aspilicueta, which would have meant a penalty. So, but, but the, you're right. The, the the outcome still is different from the one which was the one which was given, which was no goal um, and a foul uh, deemed to have been committed by Aspilicueta. Yeah, and and then the the third VAR incident is an offside against Giroud. Um, it's one of those marginal offsides where we've already detailed in the podcast a long time ago that. Um, the technology isn't capable of giving these decisions accurately. It may have been offside, it may not have. The image showed it was offside. Under Premier League rules, you have to go with the image, you you cancel it. Um, but you can understand Chelsea's frustration with the decision-making in that game. Even, you can add in here that uh, Manchester United's first goal, their only shot on target in the first half, came from Anthony Martial. Um, a header where he moved ahead of Andreas Christensen, um, who had just had his, his nose bloodied by um, Martial elbowing him in the face, challenging for a ball. Um, a foul was given by the referee, but the referee didn't take any punishment against Martial. Martial gets the advantage of his foul play, which is that... Um, Christensen, who's not the strongest of defenders, physically strongest of defenders at the best of times, seems to lose his focus challenging for that ball, substituted at half-time. So they didn't get much going in their favour in that match in Chelsea, but let's take it to the analysis of Solskjaer and his double that Sir Alex Ferguson never achieved. Does that indicate that Solskjaer is a great manager because he's managed to achieve a double over Frank Lampard's side, who we know have got problems this season and we know are naive in certain areas? And he's managed to achieve that double with some 
extremely fortuitous refereeing in his fashion. If you want to draw that conclusion, you can. Perhaps Ed Woodward will draw that conclusion and say, Uligan Solskjaer, he's my man. I don't care. We are seventh in the Premier League and on a, on on a course for our lowest ever points total. He managed to beat Chelsea home and away. Um, I'm going to keep him for next season. In fact, I think I'm going to extend his contract because he's done something Sir Alex Ferguson never did as a Manchester United manager. Well, and we've, I think Gunnar Sol answered that question for you. No trophy for Ollie, but at the same time, <laughs> uh, it was a great shout for you to try and get him uh, one regardless. We will try and remedy that, of course, and before the end of the season. I'd also like to give a shout out to uh, Ashutosh Adhikari, who um, I think we've also answered that question regarding VAR in favour of Man United, except the Maguire foul. And I'm going to take it on to this one, um, Duncan. It's, as we say sometimes uh, that the transfer windows, the Thinking Fans podcast, we don't. We say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, of course, because we're everyone's podcast. But here we have a question by a man, we can only say it's got four separate claims to being the Thinking Man's Thinking Man's Thinking Man's fan, fan of Thinking Men. His name is Jonathan <laughs> Anthony, but he's also a professor, a knight of the realm, a Queen's Council, and, in keeping with us both, a graduated doctor. He is Professor Sir at Jonathan Anthony, QC, PhD. Now, I know you're all hanging on my every word to find out what the question is. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to then let Duncan answer it. Is it forgotten, says Professor Jonathan Anthony, QC, PhD, that United have good players in all positions when fit, with Pogba gone and a decent acquisition or two, United for the league next season? Um, I think we'll have to give that the first one-word answer in uh, transfer window history, but I'll, I'll follow up with a little caveat on Harry Maguire. The one-word answer is no. Um, and the caveat in Harry Maguire is to say, uh, in the English tradition, when discussing violent conduct and foul play on the pitch, that he got the ball first, and then he got the other one. Hey! Cojones, cojones, cojones. Sticking with Chelsea, Duncan, and a little bit of aftermath of that game on uh, Monday night, which celebrated the brilliance of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in beating Chelsea. Jetson Gospel asks the question, is Frank Lampard losing the plot? And will the situation with goalkeeper Kepa Balaga cause a rift internally with the board and the dressing room? I think he, he has an issue with Kepa. Um, obviously, the biggest issue he has with Kepa is his, is his play as a goalkeeper. Um, and I can understand why he dropped him uh, and left him out of the side um, in an attempt to get a response. But I, th I think the further issue he has is he doesn't have a good deputy. So Willie Caballero is a, a honest professional, but he's very much a backup goalkeeper at this stage of his career. And putting him in the goals is going to cost Chelsea points. Um, Lampard is hoping to get an improvement in performance from Kepa, but I think he needs to get Kepa back in the team and uh, and and get that improvement in performance um, as quickly as possible and then fight the battle with Chelsea in terms of saying to them, I need a better goalkeeper or at least 
I need a better alternative goalkeeper to put pressure on Kepa. That's a difficult fight to have because Marina Granovskaya and uh, Chelsea's recruitment team decided to invest a record transfer fee in Kepa when they bought him from Spain um, upon losing Thibaut Courtois. And we know that Chelsea, Granovskaya in particular, um, use the transfer market in a fashion where they expect to make money from it and they pride themselves on, on making good decisions in the transfer market. So and managers in the past who have gone to war with the board over particular players have, have found themselves in trouble. Um, look, we, we've talked about this several times on the podcast recently about Lampard. I see the fundamentals of a good manager there. Um, I, I like the way he handles himself. Um, I like the way he has the team playing football, I like his bravery and his decision-making. Um, they are in a position that you would not have expected them to be at the start of the season, not having had any ability to do business in the transfer market. Um, they've handicapped themselves with this war they had in January over who they should buy and ended up not buying anyone. Um, he does make mistakes. They, they make tactical errors. They, um, they're poor from set pieces on, on quite a frequent basis. Um, I see a team, and you see Lampard commenting on it, who are naive in some of their decisions on the field. So he complained that when they got that foul from Anthony Martial on Christensen, um, that they gave the ball away immediately from that foul, allowing Manchester United to attack and, and being unhappy with that uh, decision making and and we've, we've seen that in in a lot of games recently a naivety um, in decision making on the field when Tammy Abraham uh, got injured going into advertising hoardings he, instead of staying down and stopping the game and getting treated he, he carried on playing and ended up uh, in that match against Arsenal um, trying to mark the player who scored um, crucial goal in that game and failing to do so because he couldn't move properly. Um, you saw around that incident, uh, Tammy Abraham struggling and, and Chelsea players not putting the ball in the stands. Um, they have, you know, they have difficulties with the makeup of their squad, and there are issues that Lampard has to solve. But the sense I have is of someone who's extremely intelligent and committed and wants to do well in this job and is paying attention when things go wrong and trying to work out solutions to it. But for sure, this is going to be a very testing end of the season for him. And in some ways, he's made a rod for his own back by starting the season so well and getting into a position where we were expecting them to finish fourth um, and, and having this you know, heavy drop-off in results since then and particularly struggling to win at Stamford Bridge, which has always, almost always been a place of great strength for Chelsea in the Premier League. I think there are two things which are in Lampard's favour um, in terms of the current issues that he's facing, Duncan. Um, one is, uh, as you have already alluded to, he's an intelligent man, an intelligent manager. He handles situations... I think very maturely for someone's only second season as coach. And he has recognised the mistakes of himself and his players. And he is actively trying to rectify them game by game on the training ground as well, obviously. 
he doesn't hide from um, the drop-off in form or the poor performances or form of some players. Again, uh, the way he referred to uh, Batchwise performance against Manchester United, um, he didn't hide from the fact that it was poor and it, and it wasn't good enough. Um, Abraham being out, uh, given his goal-scoring uh, record so far this season, the Premier League in particular, is not helping him. Um, the second thing, which I think um, is not helping him as a manager, but I think uh, is certainly noticed by his players, and that is that they went into the season under his tutelage for the first time, obviously, knowing that they couldn't recruit players in the summer window. And so they played that part of the campaign up until Christmas, knowing that, you know, this is us, this is our squad, this is what we have to perform with and make sure we do the best we can. Unfortunately, what happened after that is they obviously uh, the appeal against the second window uh, ban was uh, upheld and suspended. And so he spoke openly about his hopes to recruit, but only to strengthen where it needed doing in the January window. Uh, his players, I know from speaking to people close to the dressing room at Stamford Bridge, uh, were not afraid of competition and in fact welcomed the idea of having augmentation to the squad, especially because they trusted their manager to only do it in places where he believed, and indeed the team themselves knew, they had to have stronger options. Centre-half, striker, and on the left side of midfield, so attacking midfield. No one, I believe, was more surprised than Lampard himself that not a single player was recruited in the January window. That trickles down to the dressing room and players become slightly confused about uh, what their own position is, what the manager's situation is, uh, why if we lost a transfer window in the summer and we fight hard to open that window for January, did we not take advantage of it given the hard work and results we achieved August to December. Um, now, you can't, as an administrator, Rina Kronovskaya, Bruce Buck, the chairman, etc., etc., it's unlikely, given that they have no direct relationship with the dressing room outside of the conduit one between the coaching staff, administrative staff, that they will be able to understand or indeed interpret that mood they may well say anyway in their defence, well, we just couldn't get deals done that we wanted done at the right price, etc., etc. Okay, that's fine, but do you want to make Champions League or don't, don't you? Simple as that. And I guess some of the players who, again, I, I reiterate, worked very hard, achieved in some ways uh, an improbable um, string of results to get them into the top four, in the circumstances, uh, using uh, a, a fulcrum of young, talented players, mainly English players as well, um, they felt like they had been somewhat, I don't know, just let down by the club in the fact that they didn't uh, strengthen the squad in January. And that has a knock-on effect. I don't care who you are or what industry or business you're in, that has a knock-on effect. If you think that you're not getting the backing 
from your bosses, then ultimately that's going to have a negative effect on your performance, whether you're working as a lawyer, an accountant, um, as a Sir Professor QC PhD, like Sir Jonathan, um, anyone will feel a little bit let down by the people above them if that's the case. I think that's one of the things that Frank's dealing with now, and that will be one of the crucial things that he will have to deal with come the end of this season, regardless if they finish in Champions League or not, with what happens in this summer window and going forward. And th- I think that these next few weeks and months will tell him a lot about how he is viewed by the Chelsea hierarchy, as well as um, how the players themselves as well are going to take forward into next season. Of course, the ongoing um, situation between Manchester City and UEFA that we mentioned at the top of the pod and that we've been talking to uh, about um, for months, of course, now, uh, moves on. Um, Bolt from the Blue, a regular listener uh, who often um, sends questions in, asks Duncan, what happens if Manchester City win the cast case against UEFA? Well, the the simple answer is if they win, absolutely, then uh, the Champions League, Europa League, European competition ban should be removed and the the fine of 30 million euros um, for breaching financial fair play regulations and failing to cooperate with UEFA's investigation should be quashed. Um, I think uh, from the way Manchester City have presented their case um, and their argument against UEFA ban, um, that would have to be the only acceptable outcome for, for Manchester City. They would want, at the very least, um, the, the ban removed and their money back. Um, I would expect them, in, in addition, to ask uh, for the legal cost to be paid. Uh, they have already asked for damages from UEFA in their, um, their attempt to have CAS throughout the entire process, which was rejected by CAS. So you can imagine them doing that. I think I think the question is if they um, if they do win, will they take it further still? Will they then go on a legal offensive against UEFA and say, "Look, Cass have um, said you were wrong. Therefore, you did damage us as a club. You've damaged our personality rights, as they described them in the Cass case, uh, and we want money for that." Will they go forward with their threat to? Um, tie UEFA up in knots and take them down through legal action. In principle, they could they could go and say, well, that's not enough for us to win at CAS. We actually want to go after UEFA, um, having done so. That would be an extremely risky route to take um, if they, they, they put themselves even further in a position of aggression against the European governing body. And I think it's interesting to note that there were reports yesterday and reports from someone who's very well informed in Manchester City, David Cohen and The Guardian, that UEFA are actually looking at Manchester City's um, FFP submissions from 2016 onwards. So the case that they've been found guilty on refers to 2012, 2016. And there's a discussion with, within UEFA, um, according to David Cohen's report, that given that it's now been demonstrated 
that Manchester City manipulated their uh, financial fair play submissions during that period. Should they now try and find out whether they've been doing it since 2016 as well? Can you trust anything that Manchester City have filed to UEFA um, when adhering or, or um, attempting to adhere to financial fair play? Is there scope for another case against them? Um, so, which you could view as UEFA warning City in response to City's stated um, position after the ban which was handed down, which was UEFA biased against us. Essentially, UEFA tried us in a kangaroo court and um, they were always going to come up with this verdict because Evil Term had, in, in Manchester City's version of events, um, previewed the verdict in, a, in an interview given some time before the investigation even started. Um, so, so Manchester are very aggressive in their statements and it's you could view what UEFA are doing now as, well, if you guys don't accept this, I don't think it, it's necessarily going to be the end of it because we have good evidence as far as we're concerned, very good evidence that you broke the rules between 2012-2016. So if you want to challenge us some more, we can uh, we can... We can go and investigate in great detail, perhaps even go back to the source of those documents and ask if he has more documents on uh, Manchester City from other years um, and uh, and find you guilty of, of further um, FFP breaches. So th that's going to be interesting to observe. We have a, an interview um, today, uh, released this afternoon by Manchester City, with the club's chief executive, Ferran Soriano, who virtually never speaks publicly. Um, and he, um, I think it's intriguing that he's the first um, on-record voice from Manchester City, a Manchester City employee, talking about the, fan the financial fair play um, case and the ban after it has been imposed. Normally, we would have had Pep Guardiola talking, uh, as he has been, as we said on Monday's podcast, he's been forced into being the, the spokesman for City on this matter on numerous occasions. But Pep Guardiola did not give a pre-match pe press conference for the, um, the rearranged Premier League match with West Ham United that goes forward tonight. Um, so there was no opportunity for journalists to ask him about his reaction to the case. Instead, we have Ferran Soriano, Pretty much going down that line that was that was um, in Manchester City's press release. The argument is that everything, every allegation, he says, well, the most important thing I have to say today is that the allegations are not true. They're simply not true, which is interesting given they've been found guilty of them. Um, talks about um, the, the charge that the owner of Manchester City had been putting money into the football club via sponsorships, says the owner has not put money in this club that has not been properly declared. We're a sustainable football club. We're profitable. We don't have debt. Our accounts have been scrutinised many times by auditors, by regulators, by investors, and this is perfectly clear. Well, yes, maybe it is perfectly clear, except when UEFA scrutinised them and found that the um, weren't happy with those accounts and uh, handed down a Champions League ban. Um, there is an attempt to separate the investigatory chamber of um, UEFA's financial fair play body away from the, the rest of UEFA. Uh, Soriano talking about how uh, their experience of the investigatory chamber has been negative more than he would have imagined, but saying, but this is not UEFA and that UEFA is much bigger 
than this FFP chamber. So you, you can see a tactic there um, of trying to perhaps appeal to other individuals in UEFA to support Manchester City and um, and not listen to what the investigatory chamber and the adjudicatory chamber have decided and uh, and change their tack about a club which is one of the most affluent in football and as we've said in the podcast many times, contains the most expensive squad football has ever built. And then there's um, a response to a question that you've spoken to Pep Guardiola. How is he? Soriano says, obviously he's been kept informed about this process, but this is not something for him to respond to. He is focused on the football. He is focusing on the game, the game at hand, the game today, tomorrow and the next week's as well as the players, they're calm, they're focused, and this matter is more a business matter, a legal matter, than a football matter. That I also find interesting, given that Guardiola did not do the press conference. Um, you wonder whether Guardiola requested that Soriano spoke um, first about this, rather than he having to speak about it. And I think we'll find out tonight whether he is prepared to accept questions on, on the ban. Um, and it will be interesting to see whether he is prepared to talk about it and, and what his response will be. Um, and I think also to note there is the, the claim that the, the, the players are calm and focused is more of a business matter. That's not my understanding of, of how the players have responded to this situation. Um, my understanding is that Manchester City have a serious problem with their, their extremely expensively assembled squad. Um, they have been told by Soriano that the ban will be removed, that they are not guilty and that the City's legal defence will result in them playing in Champions League football next season. But what I'm told is a number of the players are not convinced that that is the case and they're worried and concerned that they will not be paid as much next season because um, a big percentage of their salary is dependent on being in the Champions League and winning matches in the Champions League. And they're concerned that they will not be able to play in the Premier Club football tournament, which players of their calibre expect to be in. Just a, a question of um, curiosity. How many kangaroos does it take to make a court? <laughs> well, seriously, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we know that it takes more than four, four people, is that correct, to make a quorum? Uh, of of decision makers, I just wanted to make kangaroos make a court. That's all. It seems you have to have an investigatory kangaroo, maybe three, three or four investigatory kangaroos, and then another four or five adjudicatory kangaroos to have a proper kangaroo court. And how much does a kangaroo cost these days? <laughs> I do not have that information, I'm, unfortunately. I'm, ask, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> Okay, we'll leave that there. You can all interpret what we think of that. Lots of uh, controversy in terms of VAR and offside, of course, on Monday's big game in the Premier League between Chelsea and Manchester United in terms of offside. Uh, Arsene Wenger, who I've always um, had faith in as someone who has the best uh, for the game at heart and someone who's a man of um, both diplomacy and good counsel has suggested uh, a way forward uh, in terms of changing rules. Of course, there's an IFAB meeting in 10 days' time where these uh, very proposals will be discussed. Our listener, Matthew Miller, at Miller Matu, has asked Duncan 
What are your thoughts on Venga's offside proposal? For me, they are the perfect solution and give back, gives back the advantage to the attacker. Well, look, the, this listener has, um, has very good judgment in some areas being a Dundee United supporter, but I'm afraid I can't agree with them on Wenger's proposals. Um, Wenger's the FIFA head of global development recently appointed, and, and I agree with you, and I think that's... If you were to choose one person that um, that I've had the fortune of reporting on and working with during you know my time covering football, I, I think Arsene Wenger is about as good a selection you could get in terms of his you know his obvious the degree of thought he puts into the game of football is his love for it and his ability to have an intelligent discussion and answer and view on any, pretty much anything he presented them with. He was a at least for the, the, the majority of his time as Arsenal manager before things started to go wrong, he was a joy to do pre-match press conferences with because you were guaranteed to have an interesting discussion at some point. However, I, I have to say I disagree with his view on the offside rule. What he said um, was there is room to change the rule and not say that a part of a player's nose is offside. So you're offside because you can score with that. Instead... You will not be offside if any part of the body that can score a goal is in line with the last defender, even if other parts of the attacker's body are in front. Um, that will sort it out and you will no longer have decisions about millimetres and a fraction of the attacker being in front of the defensive line. Well, he's right that you won't have decisions about a fraction of attacker being in front of the defensive line in terms of millimetres, but what you will still have is decisions about uh, a fraction of the attacker's body being in line with the front of the defender in terms of millimetres. You're basically just shifting the problem. So instead of trying to assess whether the whole of the attacker's body or the parts he can score with are all behind the defender, you'll now be trying to assess whether um, you can allow most of the body to be ahead, but whether just a little bit of the body, a millimetre um, of back heel, is in line with, for example, the defender's armpit, because that would work as the as a as part of the defender's body, um, which he could score with. If the attacker's heel happens to be just in line by millimetre with the defender's armpit, then he would be on onside under Wenger's version. Same problem, same analysis problem, same problem with the software, same problem with VAR technology that cannot do these millimetre judgments. Exactly the same technological problem. You're just shifting it. You're making it easier for attackers to score goals. You can argue that's a good thing. But I think you've also got to take into account if you allow the attackers that much of an additional advantage. And remember, the offside rule has been changed many times over the years to aid attackers. It used to be, if any attacker was in an offside position when a ball was passed forward that was given offside even if it didn't go to the attacker um, who got the ball and scored or created the goal now um, you have to be involved in play um, so we've shifted the the offside rule down the years to make it easier for attackers you make it this much easier and then you will fundamentally change the way I think defenders will have to operate and, and the way in which managers will have to set out their defences because they'll have to be more careful um, in positioning themselves against the attackers. That I don't think you want to introduce without at least trialling it, using um, a league that's prepared to have a go and see what the 
effects of such a radical change are. Because what normally happens with football is when you make radical changes to the rules, you get unforeseen um, repercussions and you can end up damaging the sport by um, what seems in principle uh, an easy uh, change to make and a sensible change to make. VAR is the great example here. VAR seems a sensible and intelligent change to make. What could be wrong with having a, um, a, a monitor to check the decision and a video um, second opinion on difficult decisions in football? That was the view of the majority of the football community when the system was brought in. Well, we've seen what was wrong. We've seen the radical implications that has and, and the ramifications that no one expected, and we still haven't sorted them out. There's one other thing which um, Rafi Honigstein, um, who our regular listeners will recognise as a friend of the podcast, an excellent contributor, who is actually a very staunch defender of, of VAR, he pointed out that you know it's too big a change to solve what's a, a simpler problem. But secondly, it actually makes it very hard for linesmen on the field to make judgments of offside because linesmen put themselves uh, as, as a basic position in line with the last defender. So they stay try and stay at all times level with the last defender and that is the line that they make their judgment off. They'd no longer be able to do that because the line they're making the judgment off is, um, is then affected by where the, the, the attacker is. Um, so it's a much more complex visual problem for the linesman to solve. So we're actually would be not only failing to get rid of the VAR technological issue, we'd be making it harder for linesmen to do the job that they actually do pretty well and have done pretty well for decades. Your points are all valid there, Duncan. I agree with uh, most of them, except the fact that anyone who's ever played football with me will know that given the size of my nose, in the current climate, most of my 147 career goals would have been ruled offside, uh, just by my <laughs> nose alone. I think Paul Mariner, the prolific uh, Ipswich Town and uh, England striker, may also be in agreement with me on that one. Uh, so perhaps it's time for uh, Paul, uh, Arsene Wenger and I to get together and start the discriminationary case against VAR for people with big noses who play up front. This is Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast, even though you may think you'd be listening to a surreal conversation about striking <laughs> and the size of the schnoz. Uh, as it's Wednesday's podcast, of course, we're going to finish with the infamous Donkey Award. We promise you it will have nothing to do with VAR or bodily parts. Instead, we are going to name today's Donkey in the honour of Mr. Brendan Rogers. Uh, and this, of course, comes against the background of that uh, Manchester City ban in Europe and the fact that the Premier League, of course, are also currently investigating Manchester City in terms of financial regulations, which has led to the proposition and possibility that they might be stripped of their 2014 Premier League title. What may you say has this got to do with Brendan Rodgers? Well, of course, that was the year that his Liverpool team finished four points behind Manchester City. So if City were stripped of that title, then theoretically, Liverpool's wait for a Premier League title and indeed a top-flight title would not be over this year. In fact, it would be backdated six years and Brendan Rodgers would be very much entitled to have his very own open-top bus parade around the city of Liverpool 
with the Premier League trophy, him and Stevie Gerrard, probably the only two people on the bus. Maybe Jordan Henderson skipping from one to the other to do both with, of course, Jurgi in the back during the 2020 Championship trophy. As well as, of course, we understand, Duncan, uh, Liverpool booked two opened up uh, top bus parades, one for Champions League possibility, as well as one for the Premier League. So, after all that, we have the potential for three open top buses in the city of Liverpool this summer. You just can't get enough of this, can you? So today's donkey is going to be the Brendan Rogers Award for the ghost celebration. And of course, that's the ghost because it never actually happened and doesn't exist. Well, it might yet. So uh, three nominations, Duncan. I'm now going to read out. Well, apparently you'll be, all be glad to know that we actually got the um, surplus golden envelopes from this year's Oscar ceremony. They're so impressed by the donkeys, they sent them to us so we could use them for our nominations. Uh, the first is a Liverpool player, and that is Luis Garcia, the scorer of the very ghost goal at Anfield in Champions League semi-final 2005, which put Chelsea out uh, of the tournament and saw Liverpool go on to win that memorable game against AC Milan, coming back from 3-0 down in the Ataturk Stadium, widely remembered as the spirit of Istanbul amongst Liverpool players, fans, etc., which, of course, fits in nicely with the ghost celebration. So that we just had to say, well, Luis Garcia's goal shouldn't have counted, or should it? Well, it's a ghost celebration. Second nomination is our old friend John Terry, and, of course, his ghost celebration came in the form of, even though Chelsea weren't stripped of the European Cup, JT was stripped to lift it, uh, in Munich at the Allianz Arena, having beaten Bayern Munich in 2012. And the third, and this is probably the most controversial of all three, Duncan, England's 1966 World Cup victory at Wembley against the Old West Germany. A ghost celebration helped by a goal which should never have counted. Duncan, please award the golden statuette this week uh, in the, the honour of Brendan Rodgers' ghost celebration. Well, I'm tempted by Luis Garcia, um, especially after that report that came out recently that Liverpool were planning their um, their open top operation for Premier League, and were having a discussion as to whether they they needed to plan two, um, in the expectation that they would retain the European Cup, and and whether they should combine those celebrations together, or whether the best way to do it was to have double parties and now obviously with this um with the possibility however unlikely that the premier league take um the uh, the, the title off manchester city in 2014 and hand it to um steven gerrard who said in uh, in one of his uh uh roles as rangers manager that he's very very interested in in the, the manchester city case as to whether uh, the the uh, the title comes back to Liverpool. Now they have the possibility of having to arrange three open top bus ceremonies, and as you say, having um, certain players jump between them in uh, in those uh, uh, celebrations for their their many titles that could be coming their way this season. Uh, you also have to say that Stephen Gerrard has been quite brave uh, talking about the possibility of titles being stripped off um, Manchester City or a prominent club. Uh, given his role as Rangers manager and uh, their history of, of being demoted down multiple divisions for 
egregious breaches of rules and, and not actually having titles stripped off him. I uh, wonder if he ran that by the Rangers PR department before he decided to talk about it. Do you think they've got the ability to raise the slip as well? You know, like do that men in black thing where <laughs> where where you raise the memories of everyone who ever saw Steve Gerrard slip was by the press of a ballpoint pen. Uh, and it erased Emba from existence. Demba as well, as well yeah. Demba suddenly disappears like the photograph in Back to the Future. <laughs> but I'm not going to give it to Liverpool. I, I'm not even going to give it to John Terry, who I think has quite a few of these already, although his um his uh, ghost celebration is a very special one. I think it really has to go to England. Um, their one World Cup win tainted by that terrible decision to give them a, the, the goal that turned out to be decisive that was never a goal in a tournament that was tainted by um, players being kicked off the pitch, the best player in the world, Pelly, being kicked off the pitch in the, in the earlier rounds. So I think England um, World Cup win 1966 deserves to be deleted from history and, and wouldn't that be a happy outcome for um, quite a lot of other nations most prominent of which being the one we both come from Ian <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Uh, I look forward to this year's um, Euros it being a home championship for England and, and the uh, incredible appointment of Azerbaijani referees at Wembley again just to give us all something to talk about and of course the opportunity, more important than anything else, awarding even yet another donkey. Azerbaijani VAR officials all round at oh, Wembley. Listen, I think we can appoint them right now. Um, <laughs> this has been Wednesday's Transfer with the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope, indeed, that you have um, enjoyed listening to us answer your questions. Thank you for sending them in. As ever, we enjoy reading them all, picking some out, and, of course, involving you, engaging you in the debate. To continue that, please do so, as always, at our social media accounts, on Facebook and Instagram and uh, on Twitter at Transfer Podcast. Duncan is on Instagram at Duncan.Castles. Uh, he's on Twitter at Duncan Castles. I'm on Twitter at GarbleSJ. And if you like what you've heard, then please uh, log on to Apple iTunes Give us a five-star review. We improve the community, enlarge it. Debate gets better. Uh, you might even get a few more jokes as well. Who knows? Uh, that's it for Wednesday's podcast for the thinking fans. Transfer window. We'll see you through it again this Friday. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey.